This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 93 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Mike Morris, Chief Technology Officer at Route9B, where he's chief architect behind the design and integration of their active adversary pursuit threat hunting platform. Mike began his career in the U.S. Air Force and was an integral part of many of the Department of Defense's pioneering efforts to help protect the nation's cyber infrastructure. Mike shares the story of his professional journey from the military to the private sector, his philosophy on threat hunting and threat intelligence, and how he thinks organizations can best build effective teams. Stay with us. So I'm prior U.S. Air Force. Uh, So I've conducted cyber operations on behalf of the United States Air Force for approximately 10 years. I came out of the 315th Network Warfare Squadron, um, so which is the Air Force's essentially uh, premier cyber squadron for cyber attack and and, uh, ISR type activities. Now, when you were uh, growing up, was uh, technology something that you were interested in? It absolutely was. So uh, it started probably around the time that I was 12. My family got our, our first computer and it was a, you know, a gateway 2000, I guess. And so mm. during that time frame, I had taught myself the Windows file structure, start, you know, trying to understand how it worked. And then I, I think I, I moved into the what would be kind of considered cyber operations by punting people in AOL um, many, many moons ago. Right. And then that, that kind of became the trajectory path for me wanting to move into this space. And so when you made your move into the military, uh, were you in this line from the get-go, or was it something you pivoted over to? No, I pivoted over. During the time when I came in, they didn't have a cyber component for the U.S. Air Force. So what they ended up doing is I wanted to do a signals intelligence background, learning how telephony and everything else worked. Um, Then I got put into my first mission, my first duty assignment, and I was working operations. And during that time frame, they uh, they put me through a one-year comp sci degree program at the University of Hawaii. And as part of that that degree program, really it was to teach me how to do uh, you know collection, how to how to bypass uh, capabilities, things of that nature. And then I, I started doing that on behalf of the Air Force in a special in a special mission. And then I was pulled back to the 315th Network Warfare Squadron when they started to formalize it. And then I, I initially wrote when I was in, although I was doing operations, I wrote the initial CFETP, which is basically the enlisted uh, training manual. So I wrote their initial component for what ultimately led into their cyber operations schoolhouse. And then I was grandfathered into what they call One Bravo 4 AFSC, which is cyber operations. And so um, I was conducting operations all 10 years, essentially, on behalf of the, the Air Force, but they really didn't have the discipline. It wasn't it wasn't a known uh, job title inside the organization until uh, probably around the 2009 2010 timeframe. Hmm. Now I noticed uh, in your bio here that uh, you've gotten some recognition from uh, both Presidents Bush and Obama uh, for some of the work you did uh, with cyber. Can you share with us uh, what was that about? Yeah, well, so there were classified cyber operations. Um, one of the operations, obviously, well, really both of the operations. Um, they they led to during that time frame led to sensitive um, access is what I'd say hmm. and you know which initially I guess let me step back in 
in the early 2000s, as I had mentioned, cyber, you know, cyber operations on the offensive side, it wasn't a big thing, right? In fact, one, one individual used to say that cyber operations to influence, you know, intelligence collection and things of like that, it was really the dessert. And then what ended up taking place is as the Intel community started to realize the effect and the impact that cyber could have on providing collection type capabilities and intelligence, then it really became the main course. And so when I first moved into this, it was kind of that dessert type component where it was, hey, this is awesome information that we wouldn't have been able to receive in any other way. And then what it turned into is it turned into really the initial effect and impact to be able to pull back data and influence the battlefield. And so you eventually decide to leave the military and enter the private sector. What drove that decision? Yeah, well, actually, a couple of things. Um, I'll give you the long-winded, the long-winded story. So I was trying to go Air Force. Uh, I was trying to go officer in the U.S. Air Force, hmm. and at the time, the Air Force kept canceling the boards uh, to go from enlisted to officer. And so I was coming up on a career decision: Do I want to stay enlisted after ten years and try to ride it out, ride it out to twenty? And at the time, being an enlisted guy in a brand new career field. I would have went into a spot where, you know, I was deployed to both Hawaii and I was deployed in place in both Hawaii and deployed in place in Maryland. And, you know, because we had that impact that I had talked about on the, on the cyber field. So in order to get promoted in the Air Force, though, in order to make, you know, E9 or something that effect, I would have needed some remote deployments. And unfortunately, being in the cyber career field, that really wasn't that really didn't exist. And so without being able to go officer, it really, I felt it was really kind of stifling my career in the military. And so I decided to, I decided to step out into the commercial sector, worked for another government contractor, creating, you know, capabilities back for, for the Department of Defense. And then I just, I took a look at really, that was my exposure into the kind of the commercial sector. And what I started to realize being in a former, former attacker is that the commercial sector had this false sense of security that the U.S. government would protect them. And they also thought they understood how attackers maneuvered. But as I would end up in conversations, I felt that they're, you know, that the network security environments and the teams that were providing security were not to any fault of their own, were just misinformed and really didn't understand. And so well, I got together with a few folks that I used to work with in the Department of Defense in kind of the joint environment. And we, we started to take a look and say, you know, how do we really have an impact on this? And and then we decided that we wanted to come forward with hunt operations using kind of that offensive mentality to provide defense. And we felt that, that that's what was missing in the space, right? When you really look at how cybersecurity is postured today, and what I feel is folks feel like they can go buy technology and that's going to solve the problem. Being a former attacker, what I'll tell you is that no technology was able to ever stop me. Because once I had to exploit into a target environment, next thing I would do is take a look at what security products do they have. I'd then go buy those products or download a 30-day free trial, create a virtual environment or create a test bed or a range essentially. And I would test my capabilities and my tactics against those. And then I'd be able to outmaneuver and maintain persistent access. And so what we really wanted was when, when we kind of took a look, we wanted to be able to create an organization of former attackers that were focused on the human and focused on the response activity, really to be able to get into a cyber knife fight. And, and that is uh, the origin of R9B. That is the origin of R9B, yes, sir. So uh, let's talk about threat hunting. I, I, let's just start off with some, uh, 
some definitions here. I, for, uh, for those who may not be familiar, what exactly is threat hunting? If you take a look at the space right now, there's a couple different, um, I guess, a couple of different ways that folks look at it. What I'd say uh, most organizations are defining threat hunting as is really collection and analysis. And what I mean by that is they're using automated security or perimeter security products, and then they'll, they'll pull back data, they look for an indicator of compromise, and then from there, they, that leads into an incident response investigation. Now, that is very important, but in my, in my opinion, that's still very, uh, very reactive in nature, right? Um, but, but it's still very, very important, and, and it's certainly a requirement. So threat hunting and Route9B's definition is really about proactive surveillance of the environment. So putting in an agentless type capability in the environment and then maneuvering through the client's proprietary network, looking for an adversary that's bypassing automated security capabilities. And then from there, what it really comes down to, though, because what you have is you still have collection and analysis that's taken place when you're doing threat hunting in that manner. But really what, what our definition is, is we focus on the response activities. As we identify a potential adversary in that environment, we, we use our expertise to be able to engage that adversary. I never go into a client and tell them that we will stop the organization from being breached, a, a well-motivated well-resourced adversary will always gain access into an environment. What the goal of any security posture and any threat hunting security posture should be is reducing the time that the adversary gets it gets to live in that environment and stopping the adversary from being able to get to the air quotes here, critical infrastructure or achieve their motive. Help me understand Help. Um, the difference here then between, is, is it being proactive versus reactive? It's actually two components. So when I look at threat hunting, the way I see it is there, there's really two aspects to it. You have the proactive surveillance, which is basically doing reconnaissance through the environment, much like a pen tester uh, would, um, but being able to pull back and collect data off of, off of your endpoints and your infrastructure, right? So that's the proactive component. Now, there's a second component to that, though, too, for successful teams. If they're already collecting data in a similar environment to like a managed security service provider where they have antiviruses, EDR platforms, perimeter security products. What we do is we will shove that data back and, and other organizations, obviously finance industry, et cetera, can do the same thing, shove that data back to the team. And what that does is that provides network telemetry so that you can now engage the adversary essentially in real time. So if I see, for instance, an antivirus, let's pretend it's McAfee, if McAfee pops on an endpoint on some network segment, then the second component of hunt is allowing for that remote tactical incident response or being able to get on that target in near real time, again, with the focus of not allowing that adversary to gain access to their motive. Now, as I'm planning out the defenses of my organization, for example, um, at what stage of the game is threat hunting something that I need to take a look at? Are there, are there things that I should uh, that go ahead of the line with it or where does it fit in? Yeah. So what I'd say is that threat hunting is a new layer of defense in depth, right? And what I mean by that is defense in depth is pretty much a, a static, uh, a static defense, right? Being able to put security products at each portion of, of your network and then pull back that data. What we failed to do in this industry is we failed to put someone on the inside living in there. And so what the reason I, I kind of give that is each one of those other components are certainly uh, necessary. 
The problem is it doesn't necessarily tell you how your network lives, breathes, and moves. And so by putting threat hunting on the inside of, of that environment, it allows for you to start to figure out what your network really looks like. It allows for you to start to identify uh, what, what tendencies inside your environment are normal and effectively start to build kind of baselines. And so what I'd say is threat hunting really should be ingrained in all organizations. Now, the problem in the, in the industry, obviously, is lack of experienced personnel and knowing what to look for. But you have organizations out there that, that do threat hunting rather well in, in the fashion that I'm talking about. And they can be subscribed to as, you know, security as a service type model. How does it uh, integrate with things like uh, threat intelligence? That's a fantastic question. So when I take a look at threat intelligence, threat intelligence is fantastic for being able to help provide you informed hunt capabilities. So when I talk through all of the existing security products, you know, that, that uh, technology stacking that organizations are doing, that becomes a network telemetry feed to help guide the hunter as, as they maneuver through that network. Now, in addition, threat intel feeds and threat intel um, subscriptions to organizations that really provide kind of threat knowledge help drive the way hunt operations should, should uh, ultimately be conducted. And really what I'm getting at there is the adversary adapts to the environment. If you recall, when I talk through my old techniques, the adversary adapts to the environment that they're going in and they create tailored solutions to maintain access and, and really get to their, their motive. And so defense teams really have to do the same thing. And that starts with threat intel being an integral part to help drive what their collection is. Now, what I'd say is one thing that organizations that I've seen in the industry, which can tend to be a problem, is many organizations will sign up for tons of threat intel feeds and digest those feeds. In a lot of cases, and that, that is certainly a requirement and certainly a necessity, but what I find is many security teams then inundate themselves by chasing some signature around the environment, trying to see if it's in there. And I, I often liken threat intel to a crime blotter, where if you have, if I live in Colorado Springs and I'm receiving national information of cars being stolen in, stolen in Detroit, although that's good information, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily impact me. Well, in, in cybersecurity, as organizations are often getting signatures or getting these new, you know, hashes that are coming through, what they're doing is they're looking through their data sets, trying to find it. And they spend a lot of time trying to go through when perhaps that that specific client isn't being targeted by that that specific signature, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. And, and as you integrate with other providers, um, you know, how as you become you know, part of what an organization is depending on for for their security posture, um, how do you keep from uh, contributing to that information overload? How, how do you make sure folks aren't being overwhelmed with information? Yeah. So there's a couple of different ways. When when we provide it as a security as a service, what we really focus on is we focus on the tactics, techniques and procedures. So instead of being really signature focused, obviously we push those signatures in and we automate many of those many of those aspects to see if it exists. But really what we're focused on, if if APT 1,001 was able to exploit an environment, that that human attacker follows a very specific methodology. And in most cases, they're going to do the same thing every single time, but they might be using polymorphic code or a different exploitation routine. And so what we do is we build out ontologies on the back end, almost essentially playbooks. We build out uh, those playbooks and then we will digest all of their data feeds, their, you know, 
take all of their WEF data, your syslog, et cetera. We shove that into the back end as part of a security as a service model. And then as we're hunting through, we treat the hunt data as the only known good in the environment. So essentially, we assume that the network is compromised until we prove that it's not. As that data comes back into our data lake, we cross-correlate those events uh, using an expert system and playbooks that we build out so that we can start to really refine the capability and really refine the data set that organizations are looking at so that they're not looking at 4 billion events that are going into, into a scene, but instead what they're doing is they're getting specific indicators that you know there's a pass the hash uh, type of event taking place or, or there's some type of spear phishing campaign. And so what we really do is we're, we're taking all those events and we're, we're really streamlining those into ta- observed tactics based off playbooks that we build out as we start to identify them. You know, I'm wondering, uh, with your experience uh, in both the military and in the private sector, do you have any advice for folks who are coming up in the industry, that person who, uh, who might look at cybersecurity as a, a place they may want to pursue? Yeah, so what I find is uh, most folks, you know, that are hobbyists um, tend to do pretty well in this industry. And, and really, if they're problem solvers, they're creative thinkers, and they, they like cybersecurity, cybersecurity is really all about fusing intelligence and IT and OT security all together. And so being able to to start to take a look at capabilities out there, testing, um, learning through trial, at, you know, um, learning through failure, really trial and error, that, that often will help them really end up gaining a higher level of knowledge in, in being able to be effective. Now, obviously, many organizations are looking for certifications and whatnot, but but I tend to find that the hobbyists and the folks that are really really tied into this and have a passion and a love tend to do the best in this industry. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting uh, insight, I think, also for folks who are who are looking to employ people and are dealing with this shortage of folks out there that uh, maybe you need to look past those certifications sometimes. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing I would say is everyone has different learning models. And so being part of, as I mentioned, in the Air Force, building out some of their training as an organization, we also train many folks. And, and what I find is Building individual training plans for folks is really, you know, really, really important because not everyone can be a jack of all trades, you know, and what I mean by that is, you know, some folks may be better at an operating system. They might understand Windows inside and out, but not understand the concepts of Linux or vice versa. They may go through a pipeline, let's say it was Hunt, but really their heart is more geared towards forensics then really pushing your people and understanding their strengths and weaknesses, you can build as organizations, can start to build individual training pipelines for them to make them more proficient. And really what it comes down to is investing in people, right, at the end of the day. I mean, we all see the stats of, of the shortage in the number of personnel, you know, that, that this industry is going to end up seeing. And so it's, it's not going to be a one-shot or a shotgun approach to be able to bring them on. Because you can take folks with any level of experience, and as long as they have the heart for doing this type of mission, they'll find a way to get it done. And then you just got to continue continue to feed them and fuel them so that they become more successful. I think as organizations start to go forward, as I, as I had mentioned earlier, when you look at Hunt, right, the, the piece that is missing, a lot of organizations don't think they're ready to do it. The problem is... It's a soft, squishy center for attackers. Once they get past the perimeter security products, it's 1995 hacking at its finest, right? Mm-hmm. Net use past the hash, SSH masquerade for the win. So when when I really take a look at, back to your, your one question, I think threat hunting needs to become an integral part of security 
because you need to be able to respond. And, and what security really should be about is right now the adversary has freedom of movement inside of the environments that they're exploiting. In order to cause pain to the adversary, you really need to be able to start to burn their capabilities and take them from the net use and the past the hash exploits or techniques, really not, not even necessarily exploits, but from those techniques and start forcing them to use their 2019 O-Day, right? And that, once you get to that point and you start burning their capabilities, that's when organizations will start to see uh, the attacker move to softer targets. And so, so I guess back to your one question, what I'd say is, in my opinion, hunting, hunting and integration of intelligence in there really needs to be at the forefront of security operations as organizations move forward. Our thanks to Mike Morris from Route9b for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.